Well, welcome to today's Catholic News Podcast. And we're talking about a very interesting topic today, the Catholic Relief Act of 1829, a walloping 190 years ago. I'm joined in the studio by Pierce Patrick Hines, who is our public affairs officer. Pierce Patrick, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Now, you amazed me, actually, because ahead of our interview with the Catholic MP of St Helens North, Conor McGinn, who's going to give us, a, if you like, the meat in the sandwich of this particular podcast, um, you presented me with a 14-page brief. Now, that is thorough. Thank you very much. You do me too much honour. But um, I thoroughly enjoyed immersing myself in all the detail of this fascinating subject. Absolutely right. Now, that, now before we hear from the MP Conor McGinn, I'm going to ask you to just give us a bit of scene setting here. 190 years ago, mm-hmm. Catholic Relief Act. I'm sure many people, at least in outline, will be thinking Henry VIII, legitimising a male heir, many wives, changing the religion of the country, dissolution of the monasteries a rather hard time for Catholics at that point. Mm-hmm. And one could say it took a good 300 years to even see the, the start of signs of relief. So tell us a little bit about how we ended up with the 1829 Catholic Relief Act. Certainly. Well, as you say, in the centuries following the Reformation, Catholics were harassed by numerous restrictions. Uh, one historian said that Catholics had for so many generations been unable to take their part in the public life of the country that it was small wonder they had for all practical purposes become non-entities. And while in 1793 the Catholic Relief Act had authorised the apportionment to Catholics of voting rights akin to those already held by their Protestant counterparts, all Catholics were still excluded from parliamentary activity and deprived of an opportunity to hold public office. There were attempts over about 30 years um, to fulfil the promise of enfranchisement with which Catholics in Ireland had been induced to lend their consent to the Union of 1801, but these were resentfully opposed by the Westminster establishment, most notably the Duke of Wellington, uh, Robert Peel, George III and George IV. Tell us a little bit about, because I didn't know this at the time, but there was a sort of parliamentary union, wasn't there, between Ireland and Britain, England and Wales. So presumably with 80, some 85% of the Irish population at that time being Catholics, there there was a clamour for, for a, a fair, if you like, redressing of, of the balance. Absolutely. Um, well, this institutional inertia had given rise to increasing frustration um, at the betrayal of the assurances that had been made to Catholics by English politicians. Mm. And it was these febrile conditions which prompted the Irish barrister and orator Daniel O'Connell to mobilise the Catholic peasantry to agitate for emancipation and to institute the Catholic Association, a movement committed to the dissolution of the Union and one of the first mass funding exercises conducted by a politician. Realising that the restoration of rights to Catholics uh, would need to be wrung from the government by harnessing the authority of an expression of popular democracy, Daniel O'Connell flouted the custom of allowing ministerial by-elections to pass uncontested and seized this chance by announcing his candidature in County Clare. Mm. His victory in the 1828 by-election on a stupendous 68% of the vote stunned the parliamentary elite and sent shockwaves through the corridors of power. And alive to the fact that a failure to manage the expectations of Catholics would foment an uprising in Ireland, Wellington and Peel surrendered. The um, partisan motivation which underlay this swift vote fast was apparent in the fact that the legislative process was spearheaded by Peel, 
whose lifelong loyalist inflexibility and distrust of the Roman Catholic religion had earned him the moniker of Orange Peel, and the Duke of Wellington, who expressed a fear of a parliament of papists and described Ireland as enemy's country. So despite resistance, how then did we end up with the Relief Act? In uh, I think got royal assent on the 13th of April, did it? 1829? That's right, yes. Well, given the legitimacy of the claims made by Catholics to be treated fairly and to have their rights to participation acknowledged, mm. the long-awaited legislation on emancipation was grudgingly granted by a parliament concerned that Catholic emancipation might in some way subvert the constitution. And the statute was forthcoming principally because of the fear of uprising and the threat of rebellion in Ireland. So not fairness and justice per se? Not necessarily. But nevertheless, the Roman Catholic Relief Act was passed to allow Catholics to sit in Parliament and vote in elections, accompanied by the Dangerous Assemblies Act, which was the second statute whereby the Catholic Association was to be abolished, and by the Qualification of Freeholders Act, which disenfranchised Catholic peasants in Ireland by raising the property qualification for voting. Well, i tell you what, thank you for that. You're very welcome. A, a good historiography there, which we certainly needed for context. But I think now it's time that we hand over to Conor McGinn so we can actually talk to a Catholic MP about O'Connell, about the Relief Act, about, if you like, what paved the way for him to be able to do the job that he does today. Should we yes. hear that? It should be very interesting indeed. This is hugely significant for... Catholic MPs who currently serve in the House of Commons because we are reminded of generations past who campaigned, who worked, who made huge sacrifices in order that Catholics could be properly represented in Parliament. But it's also hugely significant because it paved the way, arguably, for other reforms that subsequently were enacted because it broke the stranglehold of the anti-reformers and was such a significant thing. And it's hard to believe now the extent to which anti-Catholic prejudice dominated the whole of English society and certainly its higher echelons at the time and how much fear there was about giving Catholics uh, the opportunity to become members of Parliament. And I suppose it has been lost somewhat because it was the first major reform and uh, others that came afterwards and when you think particularly of women's suffrage about which there has been a huge focus in the last number of years Uh, and so I think it's important that those of us who value uh, in a real sense every day the act and what it led to uh, do our bit to remember it on its 190th anniversary. And obviously it's, it's said a lot but in this rather sort of secular world what would you say from your unique perspective um, is the contribution that Catholics can make in the public square in politics. I think we see evidence of that every day uh, in what uh, Catholic politicians do in giving witness to their faith, the campaigns that we engage in around social justice, the alleviation of poverty. Some of the more difficult issues that we have to grapple with were on occasion uh, our faith and our political positions in terms of us being legislators and representing a certain party uh, come into conflict and so you know, I have no hesitation in saying that my faith forms a huge part of my politics and the reasons for going into politics. I worked for the Irish chaplaincy in Britain, the uh, Irish Bishops Conference Agency here and I worked with prisoners and what motivated me to go into politics was that uh, for every individual that I was able to help it became apparent to me that the system was the problem and that in order to change that you had to stand up and play your part in trying to create uh, that which you know we 
uh, share amongst uh, all Christian denominations, but particularly our own motivation and our own faith to try and make this world uh, a better place and to try and alleviate suffering of those who need our help the most. And we're sort of talking about the, the prejudices of the past. Do you find on a more positive note that some of your parliamentary colleagues will actually sort of commend you for the stance you've taken that is a faith-informed one? I think so, and I think people understand that. And in a constituency uh, like mine, where traditional pillars of society are still hugely strong, uh, sport, family, work in the trade union movement, and the churches too, uh, that people realise how important a role it plays. You know, Faith in politics is not some abstract notion and it's not even particularly theological it's about you know living and giving witness to that which has motivated and informed you to go into politics in the first place and it also I think having faith allows you to get some perspective on what's going on around you particularly at a really febrile time in our politics so the ability to pray the ability to have belief in a higher power is very liberating, I find, in terms of the difficult decisions that we're all faced with having to make. Yeah, and we're not we're not going to talk about the things that obviously are dominating politics at the moment. Indeed, absolutely. I, pres- I presume you need to sort of get on your knees and pray a bit at this time. Look, you do, and you know, I I live in my constituency in St Helens. My children go to school there, and you know, Sunday morning for me, taking our children to mass and just having that quiet, <coughs> reflective period. It can occasionally not be quiet or reflective when you've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old at mass with you, but just that ability, I think, to to take the time to see to see life and the community you represent and the country as a whole and the world, quite frankly, uh, through the perspective of that faith and contemplation. And again, it goes back to one's motivation for going into public service in the first place. I have five kids and I think they sort of save up behaving badly for church, they unfortunately. Do. Absolutely. God bless them. Now, we, we mentioned those that came before and I think a quick word, Connor, on the uh, politician and barrister Daniel O'Connell, founder of the Catholic Association in Ireland in 1823 and obviously mobilised the Catholic mm-hmm. population around, uh, you know, the main aim of securing freedoms for Catholics leading to the Act in 1829. How do you feel today as an MP about the likes of O'Connell and and his non-violent contribution to change? I think Daniel O'Connell is a hugely relevant and often overlooked uh, figure in British politics, one of the most significant we have ever had. And the origins of the Act can be traced back to the United Irish Men's Rebellion in 1798, the Act of Union that came after that that abolished the Irish Parliament. Uh, And so it was a long process over... 30 years of getting to the stage where you had the act and you know the bulk of the campaigning for that came in the, the six or seven years prior to it. But it wasn't just about the issue itself of Catholic emancipation. I mean O'Connell and then subsequently Charles Stuart Parnell and his creation of the Irish Parliamentary Party revolutionised the way politics was done here. The Catholic Association was arguably the first political mass movement that got organised the campaign on a specific issue and saw the need to have extra parliamentary activity, non-violent uh, but radical extra parliamentary activity but also the basis on which you could really affect change was through being in parliament and democratising it. The thing that I find amazing is that there is no tribute to Daniel O'Connell in parliament in terms of a statue or in terms of a portrait and you think of the dozens, you know, if not hundred at least over statues, portraits and others that there are to other figures who I would argue haven't made anything like the contribution Daniel O'Connell has had. I mean, I think we as 
Catholics in in England and Wales, but also from you know an Irish perspective, need to look at properly commemorating that. The best portrait I think of O'Connell hangs in the Reform Club on Pall Mall, and it's a really striking one. And I think more than lots of others, Daniel O'Connell is long overdue recognition in the Houses of Parliament for what he did. Well, I, I hang my head in shame slightly because I hadn't heard too much about him mm-hmm. until till preparing for this, which is quite scandalous when you consider, as Catholics, holding up somebody, well, Catholics and not, holding up somebody who actually achieved the liberation of people without mm-hmm. shedding blood is quite incredible, isn't it? I mean, he was a fascinating uh, character, flawed, like we all are. Uh, but there are several very good biographies of him, and I would encourage people to learn a little bit more about him because he was then also uh, after Catholic emancipation persuaded of the abolitionist cause in the United States of America and gave quite a lot of support uh, to that in terms of helping them around logistics and organising themselves too so he was a hugely influential and significant figure I suppose in some respects he was a, a, a casualty of his own success in terms of Catholic emancipation but also then his failure to repeal the Act of Union and he was you know, haunted by that and by the great hunger that, that followed in in Ireland, and he died a, a a very broken man. And I suppose subsequent to his death, the tumultuous period that there was then in Irish and British history means that perhaps in that period beforehand, he um he has been slightly overlooked by events that took place after. I guess part of the problem as well, and, and one thing we do notice is that quite a lot of the prejudice with regard to religion seem to be passed down through generations. It doesn't It doesn't ebb away, does it? So even though we're in a more tolerant society, it seems to me that some of the religious divisions are sort of passed, passed down and held onto, aren't they? Yeah, look, there have always been difficulties uh, in terms of squaring uh, one's uh, faith and more generally faith in the in the circle that is the, 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 the public sphere. And there are still... You know, lots of uh, whispered prejudices that exist uh, about faith and its role in politics. But we have a responsibility to as Catholics and as people of faith to make the arguments for its importance and its relevance in the public sphere. And also to talk about, you know, the full range of the work that people in our church, you know, laity, religious clergy, are doing every day to make a difference in people's lives. Part of the problem we have had is that when it comes to Catholic influence in Parliament and when when Catholics make their voices heard in Parliament it's been on issues of sex and morality and not enough about the work that we do on social justice you know the incredible work we do in the in the developing world the selflessness the service the sacrifice of people in communities every day right across this country who are you know, manning the, the the food banks, you know, running the after-school clubs and educating our children, looking after uh, older people and forming and shaping the next generation to be good citizens. You know, and my argument, my contention is very clearly that, you know, my faith, you know, my attending a Catholic school, growing up in a strong parish environment uh, has, has allowed and enabled me you know, to be a good citizen and my public service is the outworking of that. So we should be very robust in defending the positive contribution that faith, and particularly our faith, has made to this country. But we should also, I think, uh, acknowledge the fact that 
you know, we need to ensure that when we talk about it, we're not just talking about what people expect us to talk about, but rather the full range of what it is that our church and its people does. And it's probably, I think, worth pointing out at this stage that the religious communities have been responsible for, if you like, picking up the slack historically when the state was either unable to do so or, Absolutely. You know, be it education, Absolutely. whatever else it might be. I see it in my constituency every day of the week. The work that is being done uh, by people of faith whose motivation is uh, their faith and to help others. I mean, it's humbling and it's a privilege, but it's what we do and it's what we have always done. Uh, and my you know, admiration when, for example, I worked in the prison system for for people like prison chaplains, lay chaplains, volunteers, you know, prison visitors, all of that unseen work that is never in the public eye, that never makes the front page of a newspaper or the six o'clock or the ten o'clock news, but is such vital work to give yeah. people in despair uh, some sense of hope. And so I feel, you know, hugely proud of the role that our church and its agencies and you know, it's people play in, in our society and in being a force for good. Here, here. Well, I'm going to ask this question hoping it's not so mischievous. Go on. Um, but looking at the modern day, the here and now, are Catholics, in your opinion, now free from discrimination as far as Parliament and the law of the land is concerned? Broadly speaking, yes. I think, though, that there are still some anachronisms I suppose you could call them historical hangovers and because we don't have a written constitution in this country because we have an established church in this country there will always be something of the outsider about Catholics I mean I certainly feel that as an Irish Catholic there will always be something of an outsider where I'm concerned being a, a British member of parliament but you know what that does no harm it allows us to keep a bit of our radical edge and you know not being quite fully signed up and part of the establishment has served Catholics well because it allows us to speak truth to power uh, and you know I note with admiration all of the work that Cardinal Nichols and the bishops have been doing in terms of calling out what the government has been doing around austerity policies and the effect it's having on communities up and down the country and I think that bit of the outsider gives us the opportunity and allows us to keep our radical age in doing that Very well said. Connor. thank you ever so much Thank indeed. you, it's been a pleasure Conor McGinn there, Catholic MP for St Helens North. Good guy, really interesting to hear his viewpoint and and the impact of of that act upon the work that is done now by Catholic MPs in Westminster. 13th of April then was the date that the act received royal assent. Yes, it was passed in the House of Commons on the 31st of March and in the House of Lords on the 10th of April uh, amid much controversy. Royal assent was granted, albeit very reluctantly, uh, on the 13th of April. Well, yes, rights restored to a certain extent, and we're, we are better off today, of course. There is some legislation. We could go on about the negatives. Yeah. There are some things still hanging around that one might deem as, as slightly prejudicial Indeed. towards Catholics, let's say. But, Piers Patrick, thank you very much. Thanks You're most for welcome. all the information and the history. I found it fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much.